Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This one thought about maybe why we do love that song is because He's worthy to be praised. And when we lift His name on high, He gets glory. And we get joy. And that's what worship is all about. God's glorified, and we enjoy Him. And He's most glorified, it's been said, as we enjoy Him. So as you're turning there, I want to take a moment. And I don't normally start out the service with a, a moment of silence or start out my sermon with a moment of silence. But I just want us to take about a minute and just bring your hearts before the Lord and ask the Lord to do a work in our souls. I'm just feeling my need to depend on the Lord. And would you bow with me and let's, let's pray and let's ask God to do a work. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, apart from you, we can do nothing. And we thank you that not only are you God, but that you were pleased to create us and to make us in your image. And Lord, we do so much of our lives often just kind of running on our own steam, running on fumes, running on just habit, running on mentally conditioned patterns of just the way we do things and routines. And Father, so precious little is given to silence before the throne of God. And I pray, Father, that you would help create in us a, an atmosphere of worship where we just we get in touch with you lord we we need you today we need you in this message we need to hear your word empowered by the holy spirit and it will only happen if you come it will only happen if you open our hearts to receive that which your word is saying with clarity and with truth and with favor and so, Father, I pray that you would prepare a word for each of our hearts where we're at today, with the issues we're struggling with today, with the needs that we bring into the room today. And our greatest need of all is to know you and to be forgiven of our sins so that we can come to know you. And so I pray, God, do a work in our hearts. Let us not be afraid of silence because it is there that we meet You, Lord. It is there that we come face to face with who we are. And when we look to You in prayer, we come face to face with God. And so I pray, Father, that as we enter into this time of preaching, Lord, that Your Word would come forth in power and encouragement and in grace. And I pray that it would be like lightning bolts into our soul 
to bring life and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones was probably the most famous preacher in England. And he was a man who knew what it was to see a revival. The first church that he pastored was kind of a rural church in Sanborn. And it was known for being a place where there was a lot of fishermen, a lot of alcoholism and drug abuse and gambling. And, and he would just preach the gospel. He would preach boldly. He would preach faithfully. He would lift up the word and... Eventually, the Spirit of God just caught fire in that church, and the gospel began to save people. And, and little by little, that church just exploded because Martin Lloyd-Jones preached the Word. And after about 60 years of gospel ministry in that church for about 10, and another 50 in a famous church in England called Westminster Chapel... Martin Lloyd-Jones would preach God's word and he would be, or his wife would be asked later in an interview, you know, what was the secret? Like, why, why such power on this man's life? Why, why such revival? Why, why did these things kind of go down the way they did? And she said in this interview, she says, you have to understand two things about my husband. Number one, first and foremost, he was an evangelist. He loved the gospel. And number two, he was a man of prayer. He was a man sold out for secret, devoted prayer to his heavenly father. And she said those were the two things that he emphasized. And those are the things you probably didn't know about when it came to Lloyd-Jones, because you think of his preaching. But he once said this about prayer. This is what he said about prayer. He said, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when, upon his knees, he comes face to face with God. And that's what we are talking about today. We're talking about coming face to face with God in prayer. We have been in a series about seeking the face of God. And today we're going to explore what, what does it look like to seek the face of God in prayer? This is the highest activity of the soul. Because what you are like when you go into your closet and you come before your heavenly father and you get face to face with God, that will tell you something about your soul. That will tell you something about the state of your Christianity. And that will tell you something about how well you know this great God who we sing holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the train of His robe filled the temple with glory. And we get the privilege to approach Him through Jesus in prayer. Think about that. Marvel at it. Be staggered by it. That you can approach God 
And if you're a Christian, you can approach him in a special, unique way like no one else in the world because you approach him as father. So prayer is the ultimate measure of our relationship with God. What we're like in prayer tells us something. And I want to say to us today, you know, husbands, do you pray? Wives, do you pray? Children, teenagers, do you come face to face with God in prayer? Because that is where the action's at. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. That's that Second Chronicles verse we've been looking at. If my people pray, and you'll remember we had a sermon about six months ago called the house of God is a house of prayer. And Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what he called the church. That's what he called the house of God. That's what he called temple worship. What is it supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about people calling on the name of the Lord. What happens in this pulpit will be weak and anemic if it is not undergirded by prayer. If what happens in the ministries we do at this church, whether it's Sunday school or children's church or whatever you do for King Jesus, if it is not upheld by prayer and secret prayer where you go into a quiet place and you get alone with God and you cry out on behalf of that ministry or you cry out on behalf of your children. How many moms are in here crying out on behalf of their children? How many children are crying out? How many teenagers, when they face the pressures of school and, and, and popularity and the things being imposed on you, by a culture that wants you to live a certain way, how many cry out in deep, real prayer before God? The great English preacher Bishop J.C. Ryle said this about the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to be looking at today. He said the Lord's Prayer reminds us that Christ's disciples pray. Like if anything we're going to get about the Lord's Prayer, it's that the Christian church is called to pray. And Jesus thought deeply about communicating instruction about what it means to pray. And sometimes we're either on two sides of the pendulum. We're like, it must just be automatic, and I'm just going to learn how to pray by osmosis. Or we just think, well... It's really, 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 really hard. And so we give up after a little bit of effort. And Jesus reminds us, and his disciples remind us, 
in the Luke account of the Lord's Prayer, the disciples are the one who ask Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Can you think of that? Like, they actually asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Imagine if you had Jesus as your teacher. Now, I've learned a little bit this past week about what it means to, because we often like to ask people who know more about stuff, right? We go and we ask them how to do the things they do. So we look to the professionals when it comes to, you know, different things, or we're going to YouTube a professional, but we will go to somebody who knows more about the subject that we want to learn about, because we need teachers. And isn't it interesting, ultimately, that these disciples are going to someone to find out about prayer? Now, we had our garbage disposal back up this week. And so I tried to fix it, and I was sticking my hand in there and trying to figure out what to do, and, you know, and it was just like, and it just sounded like it was miserable. And I gave it a Herculean effort, but ultimately, I couldn't fix it. So I called a plumber, because he knows more about it than me. And I started asking him all these questions. Like, okay, so if I stick this here and, and, and how do you, you know, how do you know that it's busted? How do you know when you're beyond hope? You know, and I start asking everything I can think of so I can fix it the next time. And ultimately, that's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He is telling them what it means to pray. He's showing them what it means and he's showing them how to pray. And this is Jesus. Jesus knew what it was to spend hours in prayer before the Father alone. He would spend all night sometimes in prayer. And then he would go out and do a full day's ministry. And he would heal lepers and he would give sight to the blind and he would raise the dead. And if you imagine like Jesus had a relationship with the Father in heaven like nobody else. So we have a privilege because it's been recorded in Scripture for us to actually come and learn in Christ's school of prayer what it means to be a person of prayer. What it means to actually call upon God. And I just marvel at it because we're invited to eavesdrop in a discipleship opportunity where Jesus is discipling his, his, his people. And we get to eavesdrop and hear what Jesus taught. And just like I was leaning in with that plumber, we need to lean in and hear what the Lord has to say to us. So look with me, if you would, at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. And there's so much here. We're going to take two weeks on this. Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5. This is what the Lord says to His disciples. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly or reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you, your trespasses. Those are the words of the Lord when he's teaching and when he's instructing his disciples. And they're so succinct. They're so, there's so much there. They're so deep, so profound. And there's kind of a skeletal shape, right? Jesus is actually giving us a model of what prayer should look like and the types of things we ought to be praying and Jesus also tells us the things to avoid. Right before his prayer, he tells us what to avoid. Look with me as, as we consider some of them. Verse 5, And when you play, pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And he who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is actually confronting the way the Pharisees pray. Because the Pharisees prayed to be seen by men. The Pharisees prayed so people could hear them. Their audience was everybody else around them. But prayer is for the audience of one. Prayer, it's been said, is for the audience of one. Prayer is not for man's glory, but for God's glory. And we are learning, we're learning in this sermon what it means to be a person of prayer and what it means to be caught up in something so majestic, so wonderful, that you are just, it's you and God. And you have a relationship with him and you can come into your closet and meet with your heavenly father and tell him things and talk to him and commune with him and have fellowship with him. And if we're honest, how many of us in here feel so devoid of a real relationship with God? Maybe feeling distant, maybe feeling the words of Jesus that might apply to you when he rebuked the Pharisees and he said to them, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. 
And we can grow callous to prayer and it can become mechanical and it can become about everybody else and not about an audience of one. And Jesus is summoning forth the kind of prayer that just loves to be with God. And perhaps, brothers and sisters, we're afraid of the silence because we're afraid of what comes up in our soul before the face of God. Because when you get quiet, when you get in the room, when you get alone with God, that's when you start to see the things in your soul bubble up. That's when you start to realize what's bothering you. That's when you start to realize what's strangling you. That's when you start to realize what you need and you begin to call on God. And oh, what would what the Lord would do in your soul if you devoted yourself to the secret prayer. To the prayer that comes to God because of God. Brothers and sisters, this is Jesus' heart for you. That you would get alone with God and meet with Him. And pray to Him. And seek Him. And that's His heart. He doesn't want us to be like the Pharisees who are just praying for show. They're just praying to be seen by others. They want the pat on the back by others, but they don't care about the glory that belongs to God. So Jesus is doing some heart surgery here. Verse 7, He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father who knows or for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus is getting at. He's getting at the reality that God does not need more information. God does not need our play-by-play. He doesn't need more information. He needs more exaltation. He doesn't need more knowledge because he knows all things. He wants you. He wants your heart. And the pagans... What they would do is they would just begin to pray and babble. And the word actually where they say empty phrases in verse 7, that's how the Gentiles, that, that, that means the heathen, talk to all their gods. And they begin to just babble. And they begin to call on every god they can think of. May some god out there do something. And they start naming the gods. And they heap up phrase upon phrase and upon phrase. And their minds are disconnected. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's not the kind of prayer Jesus is summoning. Jesus is summoning a kind of prayer that engages the mind and the heart. Jesus doesn't want news from us. And the Father doesn't need to know things about us. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to come to Him in dependent prayer knowing that He already knows what you need and you're coming to a Father who cares for you. And so we're not to babble meaninglessly in prayer, but engage our minds and hearts as we come to God because of God knowing He's a provider and He cares for us. And so Jesus would say, don't pray like the pagans. Because pagans know how to pray too, right? People who don't know Jesus know how to pray. There are Hindus who know how to pray. 
There are all sorts of other religions who know how to pray. Mormons pray all the time. But who are we praying to? And brothers, sisters, let's be clear. The God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. The God or the pantheon of Hindu gods out there is not the God of Scripture. Jesus is teaching us to pray to the only one true God who knows all things. And so when we come to him, marvelous things begin to happen in the soul. God doesn't need more information, but oh, prayer is an opportunity to give him glory. I was thinking uh, probably about two years ago um, at work, I learned what it meant uh, to be mansplaining because I heard that phrase pop up and mansplaining if you guys don't know what that is the idea is when a man begins to talk to a woman and over explain and overshare and begin to share everything like somebody's just stupid right and ultimately you know somebody's sharing this with me because I was like that's odd what's mansplaining and they're sharing with me, it's, it's basically when you treat somebody like a donkey, you know, and you're just like telling them everything and trying to train them. God doesn't need that. He doesn't need us to mansplain. He doesn't need us to tell him all these things that he needs to do. He already knows what you need. Isn't that freeing to know that you can come to God and if you don't get all the, the, the things on your list to pray about, that God already knows what you need and he cares for you. And as you come to him, you get encouraged. As you come to him, you get help. As you come to him, you begin to realize what prayer is all about because you're meeting with him, you're communing with him. And there's a glow that happens. When you come before God in heartfelt prayer, you begin to glow because you've met with God on the mountain. When Moses came down from the mountain on Mount Sinai, he was glowing and his face was shining like an angel. And people had to put a veil on him because he shined so brightly. When we meet with God, we get joy. There's a sense of, of something different about a woman or a man or a child who begins to fall in love with prayer, they begin to have an inner peace. They begin to have a sense that God is in their midst. And so Jesus is going to teach us what it means to come to God in prayer. So we're only going to take two verses of the Lord's Prayer today. And we're going to look at three things. Number one, pray to the Father. Number two, pray for God's glory. And number three, pray thy kingdom come. So let's look at that right now. Pray to the Father. See it with me in verse 9. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You've probably got that memorized. Our Father in heaven. But we forget so often how staggering it is that Jesus would actually tell us to pray our Father. There's something special and unique going on there because before in the Old Testament, the Jews struggled. They did not call God Father. They called Him Lord. They called Him Adonai. They, called him, they didn't call Him Yahweh. 
because that was the covenant name of God. There was a reverence for God. But to call him Father, that had the idea of such an intimate, personal, deep relationship that they just did not know that nomenclature for God. And Jesus, right off the bat, is telling us that when you pray, Christian, pray our Father in heaven. You can tell how much a person knows about Christianity by what they make of God being their Father. Because all of us are in Adam when we're born. We're in Adam's family. And what happened in Genesis 3 to Adam's family? Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and they plunged the whole universe into the curse, right? They eat the, the fruit of the garden and there's a curse that comes upon mankind and man is separated from his God and man is separated from his, his wife. There's strife in the marriage and man is tilling the ground and it's producing thorns and thistles. So we're ultimately experiencing the effects of the curse in the world around us. So there's a curse upon us in Adam's family. And we're born into that. The reason that you don't have to teach your children how to sin and they learn it all by themselves is because we're in Adam's family, right? Adam's family. That's your family by nature. You have to become a child of God by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, dear saints, listen. When you begin to call God Father, it's a sign that something's happened in your soul to bring you out of Adam's family into the family of God where you can come to the Father as your Father. You can come to Him as your Father and fathers care and fathers provide and fathers protect, and fathers rescue. Now, we may have different earthly representations because we're image bearers of God. So some fathers have imaged God well. And we see what it means to provide and protect and be cared for and loved in a nurturing family. And then there's other fathers who image God very poorly and are harsh and, 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 and discouraging and put people under their thumb and, and are abusive. And then there's probably fathers somewhere in between that spectrum. And ultimately, this father we call upon and we call him our father is a perfect father. Do you know what privilege it is to call God your father? Do you delight to call him father in prayer? Do you come to him like a child dependent? Jesus often used that imagery all through the Gospels. What does it mean to be saved? It's to come to God as a child for rescue. To admit your need and come to Him in all your sin and come for rescue. Now, the New Testament is just full of this imagery that God is our Father. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15 says this about this glorious reality. It says, 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That has the sense of daddy, that intimacy. And the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there it is right there. We were once enslaved to sin. We were once in Adam's family. And then through the spirit of adoption that was given to us in Christ, we have been brought into the family of God. And perhaps some of you are sitting here today and you don't know God. You don't know God. You don't know what, when, when, it, when you call upon God, it just feels foreign and hollow. You don't feel the familial relation. You don't feel the sense that you're coming to your daddy. You don't feel the sense that you're, you feel like there's kind of a distant landlord out there that you're calling upon. And God summons people in the gospel to believe in the God who is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did send his son into the world to rescue sinners from Adam's family into the family of God. And every right and every privilege is yours. And you have been delivered, Christian, from bondage and slavery, like out of Egypt kind of language, right? Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, when Jesus gets a hold of your life, you're set free. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. So how do we get in touch with this Father? We've got to come through Jesus. We've got to come through Jesus by faith. It's been said that, you know, when you need to get introduced to a family, you need an introduction. Somebody's got to introduce you to the new family. And that's who Jesus is. He's the one who not only introduces you, he's the one who adopts you. He's the one who takes you and cleanses you and makes you suitable to become a part of this family. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So when you pray, dear Christian, our Father in heaven, you're coming to the Father in prayer through the Son. And Paul doesn't hesitate to pick up this language in Ephesians. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who what? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. What does that mean? It means that every blessing in the Christian life comes from the Father to us as Christians. It comes from the Father through the Son and His work on the cross, His death for our sins, His resurrection for our life. And every blessing in Christ has been hand-delivered by the Father to us before the foundation of the world. And that's a powerful thing to encourage prayer. What does it mean to come to the fountain of blessing? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Right? We come to the fountain of blessing when we come to the Father in prayer and we pray, Our Father. 
It's profound to know that we have a good Father who loves us, who provides for us, who gives us what we truly need. And notice, verse 9 says, He's our Father in heaven. Why that little bit? In heaven. Because it tells us that this Father is over and above all creation. He's not only Father, but He's the sovereign Lord of the universe. He's in control of the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He knows every hair on your head. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from His will. This is our Father. He is in heaven and He does what He pleases in this world because He is what fancy theologians say, transcendent. He's over and above all things. And so when you come to Him in prayer, you're coming to the One who's able to provide exactly what we need. I was reading the story of Abraham being told by God that at a hundred years old, he would give birth to a son, or his wife would. That would be odd. So he would give birth. <laughs> I did it again. Um, his wife would give birth to Isaac. And what happened there? Sarah laughed. <laughs> There's no way. We're just old and wrinkled up. That's not going to happen. And God said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And maybe you need that word when you think of God as your Father. Is anything too hard for the Lord in your life? The answer is no. Is anything too hard for the Lord in those marital struggles? Is anything too hard for the Lord in the family tension? Is anything too hard for the Lord in the discouragement? Is anything too hard for the Lord in the difficulties at work? Is anything too hard for the Lord when your heart is crushed and broken? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That leads us to our second point. Pray for God's glory. Pray for God's glory. See it in verse 9. Hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use words like hallowed anymore, right? I don't really hear too many people say hallowed unless they're saying the Lord's Prayer. What that means is to treat as holy or to set apart as holy. Now, we don't make God holy. God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We don't make Him more holy by praying to Him. But we can treat His name as holy. We can treat His name as holy by coming in reverence, by coming in awe, by coming in, in, in sensing the majesty of God, the godness of God. What is the holiness of God? It's that He is like nobody else. He is totally one of a kind. The buck stops with Him. The world is in His hands. He's working His purposes out in the world. And even though evil seems to triumph, He sent His Son as the Prince of Peace into the world to reverse the effects of the curse as far as the curse is found. Holy, holy, holy is the name of the Lord. And notice that hallowed be your name. 
Now, when you talk about the name of God, you're talking about the sum of who he is. You're talking about his perfections, his character, his person. This is God who is holy, who is loving, who is just, who is righteous, who is dignified and regal and glorious. And when we read from Isaiah, what did we read? But ultimately, the cherubim crying out, holy, holy, holy. But look at this imagery back at Isaiah 6 one more time as we put it up on a slide. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple with glory. What is that imagery? Imagine a temple that the, the, the robe is so long, so regal, that it fills the whole temple up. If anybody's seen kind of like uh, a queen walk into a room or something, you know, from the palace in England, you see this long train of the robe, or we see it sometimes in weddings, right? This long train. And the longer the train, the more dignified the person. The longer the train, the more glorious the person. And this is our God. His whole train fills up the temple with glory. So much so that the cherubim or the seraphim are actually having to cover their eyes because they can't look at His majesty. And then what does Isaiah do? Isaiah's not all casual coming up to him like, hey, what's up, Lord? You know, he's like, no, <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And he's just confessing his sin and his unworthiness before God. And have you felt a sense of unworthiness before God? And often we feel it in prayer sometimes. We feel a sense of our sin. And often we don't pray because of our sin. We don't pray because we feel too dirty. We don't pray because we feel defiled. And the opposite is what Jesus is teaching. As Christians, we have a way to the Father through Jesus. We have a way to be made clean. And if you feel defiled today, when you treat God's name as holy, you come in your sins to God and you come through Jesus. And He is ready to forgive your sins. He is ready to make you clean. He is ready to take the defiled garments. He's ready to take the tongs and the censer as He did with Isaiah. And the little angel flew and touched His lips and cleansed Him. And He was atoned for. Well, that's what Jesus did on a cross. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, do you realize that you not only have access to God, but you can be clean when you come to God because of God? That the Lord's Prayer is summoning forth a people who will treat God as holy and come to Him in their sins. And that's why just a few verses later it says, forgive us our debts. When you owe a debt to God, right, as verse 12 says, your debt means that you got to pay. Forgive us our debts means that God releases you of the debt you owe to Him. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, that you had a great debt to God. An infinite debt. A mountain of debt. If you count all of your sin, all of your failure to love God and love other people, all of the times that you've lost your cool, all of the times that you've fallen short, all of the times you've failed 
and, and watching your eyes and watching your heart and looking to idols and going after substances and going after all sorts of other things to fill the soul. When you come to God in all that defilement, you need a rescuer. You need Jesus. And that's what Jesus is teaching His people to come to God, regard Him as holy, and know you can approach Him. And if you're not a Christian here today, I would encourage you, there is hope for you to be clean before God because of Jesus. And you can be caught up in the Lord's Prayer for the first time because you've turned your life over to Jesus, because you've repented of your sin, because you've finally trusted in God and began to approach Him knowing who Jesus is and asking Him to rescue you. Hallowed be Thy name. God's name is to be regarded as holy. Do we come to God with that kind of wonder? In that kind of awe, have you had an Isaiah 6 moment where you've come on your knees before God? Have you come to God and came to grips with your real sin and actually asked for forgiveness? To regard God as holy is to know who He is and to come to Him in light of who you are. Isaiah 29, 23 says this, For when he sees his children, the work of his hands in his midst, they will sanctify his name, and they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. That's what Jesus is calling forth. Stand in awe. Pray in awe. Pray in wonder. What a glorious thing prayer is. We can be in awe of God in his presence. And we have somebody that we approach Him through, lest His wrath break out against us. Because if your sins have been removed, you've been rescued, you've been brought into the family, and you can approach Him in these ways. Truth number three. Pray your kingdom come. Pray your kingdom come. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come... Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that the heart cry of our soul at this church? Is that the heart cry of our souls? Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Do we pray, God, your kingdom come? When we actually acknowledge that God has a kingdom, that God rules, and that His kingdom is breaking into this world... We are coming in touch with what the Lord's Prayer is summoning in us. It's calling us to recognize that we actually need God's kingdom to come into this world. We need God's kingdom to rule in our hearts. We need God's kingdom to change things. This is a subversive prayer. It doesn't want to leave the world by itself. It doesn't want to leave the world untouched. It wants to come in and break in. And that's who Jesus is. He's the long-awaited King who came 2,000 years ago and He announced His arrival 
He announced His arrival. And in Matthew chapter 4, just a few chapters earlier, verse 17, He says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's kingdom has broken into this world. God didn't leave us in the curse. God didn't leave us to ourselves. He broke in. Thy kingdom come. When we pray like that, we're asking for the church to grow. When we pray like that, we're asking for God to begin to come into human hearts and redeem them. Awaken them to sin. Awaken them to their needs. Awaken them to the reality that God's will is not being done here on earth like it is in heaven. Your kingdom come is a prayer and a heart cry for evangelism. It's a heart cry for God's sovereign kingdom to begin to break in and reverse the effects of this sin-cursed world. And though men are in rebellion against God, make no mistake, Jesus is calling forth the kind of prayer that changes the world, that flips it upside down that flips the, the world on its ear. I remember in the book of Acts, at some point, there's so much gospel evangelism happening and the gospel's being preached and, and, and the people are losing money because their idols are being thrown out by all these people getting saved and, and their business is getting hurt and they go complain before the magistrates. They're like, these men are preaching about Jesus and they're flipping the world upside down. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you pray thy kingdom come, you are praying, flip the world upside down. Do we pray like that? Do we long for that? Do we show up on Wednesday night kind of like, I want to summon this, God. I want to summon this into the world. God, would you save sinners? Would you break out in revival in our lands? Would you revitalize my soul? Would you awaken me to these truths? Would you help me to pray our Father? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Now you might be saying, well, I thought God was in control of everything. And that is true. God is in control. He's sovereignly governing the universe. Verse, or, uh, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 135.6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in his, the seas and all the deeps. Or... Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So what is that? Well, there's a difference between God's sovereign will that's being worked out in human history and we cannot see, and God's moral revealed will in Scripture that's being broken all the time, every time we sin, every time... There's evil and wars and strife and, 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 and marriages breaking up and, and all sorts of things going on in the world that we know are just against God's will, right? God's will is being broken. And so the Lord's prayer is saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. 
your revealed will, your will and design for the flourishing of humanity, your will for all that is right in this world. Set it right, Lord. And what does verse 11 say? But your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the angels are always doing the will of God in heaven. In heaven, things are done perfectly aligned with God's moral and prescriptive will. But when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are asking for an invasion of God's spirit and kingdom into this world to transform it forever. And we're acknowledging that we're not there yet and we're praying for it to come. So we're in the already, the kingdom's broken, but the not yet, we're praying for, Lord Jesus, come, break the kingdom in. Change hearts, change lives. Maybe you're saying in here today, I need a fresh work of God in my soul. Lord, would you do it? Maybe you're coming in here today and you just feel distant and far from God. You feel like your sins have driven a wedge between you and your God. Well, this prayer reminds us that we need the kingdom life of Jesus breaking into our hearts. And that's what we see in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew uh, chapter 4 and verse 23 says, this is what Jesus did. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He preached the gospel of himself to the world, and then he began to reverse the effects of the curse. And Jesus was actually living out the Lord's Prayer in how he did business in the world. He went in secret, prayed to the Father, then went out and did ministry. And what would happen at Smithfield Baptist Church if we got wind like, if we start praying like this, if we start filling up our prayer services, if we start summoning God in our secret quiet times, if we start praying like we know we got a sovereign God whose plan is to break in in this way, who's knows, who knows what God might do in our midst? Is anything too impossible for the Lord? But we have to get Jesus' heart in this. We have to get our minds around it and our hearts around it. And begin to come to God in real prayer. Now you might be saying to yourself, like, this is, this is intense. <laughs> but Jesus was intensely serious about communicating to his disciples, this is how you pray. This is the blueprint. This is the skeleton. We're going to put meat on this. But this is how you pray. Do you pray our Father? Because He's your Father. Do you pray with a reverence for God and treat His name as holy? And do you actually pray for His kingdom to be advanced in this world? Do you order your life that your commitment to praying, like Jesus says, is the reality of your life? Do you believe that prayer is the chiefest, highest work of the human soul? Because there's no salvation apart from men and women calling upon the name of the Lord. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul taught. That's what Jesus taught. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And if you really think about it, when you encounter the Gospel of Jesus Christ that tells you you're dead in your sins, that you've been living your own way, you've been living in Adam's family, that you've messed up your lives, that you've messed up your families, that you've messed up your work situations, that you've messed up things because sin is corrupted, sin is divided, sin is distorted. And then you hear the good news that there's somebody who came who can actually do something about it. There's somebody who came who can actually reconcile. There's somebody who came who can reconcile you to God. And your soul is hungry for it. There's somebody who came who can reconcile relationships. Because if you know what it means to be forgiven by God, all your mess, surely you can begin to extend forgiveness when you get in touch with that to others. And then you know what it means to live in a world that's still fraught by the evils of the curse. But you depend on God, knowing all the while He knows what you need. So I encourage you, if you don't know this Jesus, if you don't know this prayer, if you don't know what it means to be a child of God brought into the family of the Father through Jesus the Son, let today be the day you come and call upon the name of the Lord. Don't let pride, don't let fear keep you from the kingdom. But call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your faithfulness and I thank You for this wonderful prayer, Lord. It's the ultimate prayer. It reminds us what You're about. It reminds us who You are. It reminds us who we are. And Lord, we desperately need you. And perhaps we've just struggled. Lord, I know I struggle at times to come to you in that secret prayer. God, would you cultivate that in our hearts? Would you cultivate that in our souls? Would you help us to be a people known for prayer? Would you help us to be a people known for gathering to pray? Would you help us, Lord God, to be a people awakened to the kind of prayer that prays thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, I pray for those that you are even awakening now today to their need for Christ, their need for forgiveness, their need for rescue. Father, I pray that deep in their heart, deep in the most primitive regions of their soul, that they would call upon you and say, Lord, Please save me. Please come into my life. I believe in King Jesus. I believe He can rescue me from my sins. Please forgive me of my sins. Please make me new. And please let Your kingdom reign in my heart today. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.